Welcome to this episode of our Litigation Trending Spotlight on Class Action podcast mini-series. My name is Tim West and I'm a partner in Ashurst London Dispute Resolution Practice. In this episode, we are looking at the issue of public relations in class actions. I'm joined by John Gale, who's a partner also in Ashurst London Dispute Resolution team. And John and I are delighted to welcome Simon Pugh from Portland Communications. Simon is a crisis communications expert and has worked with many international clients who face significant threats to their reputation. He's worked on an array of high profile issues, but most relevantly to today's discussion on group litigation and both claimant and defendant side in collective proceedings in the CATS. Welcome, Simon. Thank you for having me on. Simon, I thought I might kick off by framing our discussion in terms of why, when we're doing a podcast mini-series about class actions, it's important that we consider PR as part of that. From a solicitor's perspective, um, we're increasingly asked to solve the whole problem. And obviously, our legal strategy is, is a very important part of that, but it is just one plank of a broader strategy to get to a particular desired legal outcome for our clients. And in a class and group action context, do you want to briefly explain to our listeners how communications can contribute to that broader solution? Yes, absolutely. So I think through the work that we do when we're kind of talking to um, to lawyers on a daily basis, I think we absolutely recognise that point that you made about being asked to, to kind of look at the whole problem. Um, I think, you know, 90% of um, of the problem is is a legal one, but there is this kind of 10% that I think comes down to comms and reputation. Um, and particularly in a kind of class action setting, whether you're the claimant or the defendant, the, um, the perception that um, the class have of you is vital. Um, and, there, and therefore that, you know, that is a, a, a comms and reputation problem. I think, you know, if you are the defendant in a, in a class action, you are, you know, you have a, an existing, a pre-existing um, link with the, um, with the class and with the claimants. In a lot of instances, we think of that as being kind of large amounts of customers, you know, in a kind of large mass consumer um, claim, but actually it can also, you know, there are also other examples where it can be shareholders or investors, or even actually large groups of employees who who get together to kind of sue their um, sue their employer, and therefore, you know, the way in which you communicate, both in and outside of the the courtroom, um, is hugely significant because what what separates a group or a class action from I suppose a, a kind of classic commercial litigation where you know two parties will have fallen out. They probably um, that will probably be kind of irreconcilable. They might might not think of themselves as ever working again. Actually, in a in a class action, for all of the kind of reasons I, I just listed, you will want to ensure that your reputation is maintained against that um, or maintained with that with that group of people um, in the in the class. That's um that, that that's really interesting, Simon. Thanks for that. Just sort of stepping back a little bit, can I ask you about the overall awareness of class actions? Um, and I've read your your 
fairly recent, I think, annual report, which touched on this, was a really interesting, helpful document. Um, when you're dealing with opt-in class actions, obviously an awareness of what of, of the action and and indeed a trust in in that action is important. But is is an awareness also important in opt-out actions? Um, you know, obviously. If you get to the stage of distribution, I can see how it's awareness, uh, it's important there. But would you say that an awareness of class actions is is nevertheless important for opt-out actions? Yeah, I'd say I'd say it's significant um, in both. And you mentioned the kind of Portland class action report, and that's something we do on a on a kind of annual basis, where we um, we poll a group of consumers, um, a, a nationally representative group, uh, on their perceptions of of um, of class actions, because we often consider um, class actions to be in a bit of a bit of an American import. In the UK, and in our last report, we had about 20% of people who said that they understood how a class action is used in the UK, and that is increasing, albeit by a small amount year on year. And about 60% of people said that they would join a class action if they were eligible. Now, when we look at the US, which, which we think of as being a bit more of a kind of advanced method of law in, in the US, we see about 41% of people polled saying that they have a, an understanding of, of class actions and about 68% of people saying that they would join if they were eligible. So we see a kind of doubling of uh, of awareness, but not a, not a kind of uh, a, a commensurate amount of uh, increase in in the number of people who would be willing to join. So perhaps we can kind of might infer from that that there is ultimately a bit of a a kind of plateau. And as as you kind of continue to drive awareness, that doesn't necessarily lead to participation for for all sorts of um, all sorts of reasons. As you kind of rightly identify in an opt in. Um, regime that's you know it, it's kind of obvious why um, why those statistics are are significant in an opt-out regime I'd say there are kind of two things that, that are also important to, to think about as well one is the point you made about um, collection of, of damages at the end in the event of a um, in the event that it is settled because obviously it, it unclaimed damages will be returned to the defendant in the cat. So that's obviously has a kind of big financial significance for the defendant. But the other thing is also considering other steps that, um, that consumers might take around the litigation that where reputation has a kind of bearing. So, you know, would they consider boycotting a particular brand or particular service because of, um, because of the, the litigation? And that's something that from a reputation Point of view, you know, we find um, you know it's hugely significant and something we talk to clients about quite a lot is you know is you're not just thinking of litigation in the kind of silo. Actually, we're thinking about the kind of wider um, wider implications on a on a business, which can you know which can be kind of substantial from a, a financial point of view. Fascinating. Uh, personally, I'm sort of a bit surprised that the differences between um, the, the consumer awareness in, in the UK and in the US aren't actually greater than that. And maybe that's a sign of just how far uh, things have come here. And, and as you say, albeit slowly, the, the awareness is, is increasing. Um, I, perhaps you've touched on some of this, Simon, um, or, or already, but in terms of what distinguishes um, the importance of, of PR considerations in a class action compared with perhaps a, 
a traditional piece of litigation. Are there any comments you'd you'd make on that beyond what you've already said? Yeah, well, I, I would re reiterate that point about um, in a in a class action, the reputational threat is potentially more significant because the claimants are linked to the defendants. Whether that's you know they are customers who were using or who were or, or are using your product, and you might still want them to do so, or at the very least, kind of people like them. You know, as I say, they could be your shareholders or investors, or they could even be your em employees. I think that brings into play. Um, the use of research, um, and that's something we talk to clients about quite regularly, is, you know, as the defendant, you have a broad understanding already of the, the makeup of, of the class. You will understand the kind of the aggregated groups that will, um, that will make up the class. And I think it's in, there is a real strategic importance to, to kind of understanding what is driving their behavior, what is kind of making them sign up to, um, you know, to a legal case against your business. Now, for some people, it will simply be the kind of that they have been promised some cash and, and that will be kind of significant. For others, it might be something slightly different. They may feel that they have been kind of wronged. They may feel that this is an opportunity to um, to hold a business to account. And for those groups of consumer, you know, for those groups of consumers, there are potentially things that you could you could do with your communications that might kind of um, that might help sort of um, mend some of that that scene damage done to your reputation so for example you know, we do talk to, uh, to clients about whether issuing an apology for example might be um might be something that that it's sensible to do and obviously an apology has kind of potentially legal significance so that's where we would you know we would obviously be working very closely um with the lawyers and legal team to kind of ensure that that legal significance is managed. But actually, you know, that might be something that customers want to see, you know, and, and if they see a business has, um, you know, has um, acknowledged that it got something wrong, it's apologized, it's put in place something and various measures to ensure that it's not going to do the same thing again, that might be enough to, uh, to effectively allay some, some uh, concerns about, about, what's, about what's happened. Yeah. I've, I've very much been in that situation where there are different voices about apologies and some people saying, well, actually, it's right that we do this. And the lawyers saying, you know, you need to give that more thought, both from a, both from the perspective of litigation, but also it impacts on potentially on the insurance position as well, yeah. um, which which needs consideration. But that's really, really interesting, Simon. Tim, could, can I bring you in on that? Uh, and, and some of the comments that that Simon was making about members of the class, because you know it's not just um, PR experts that have to have to grapple with this. And I think um, there's been uh, some interesting recent decisions on um, communications with the class and and how, how that's dealt with. Can you just talk us through that? Yeah, certainly. So the the issue arises in uh, in particular in, in the relatively new regime in the CAT. And there was a decision, there have been two decisions um, that have touched on this issue. The first was in the, the so-called Roro cartel uh, claim. And the issue there was that the uh, proposed defendants uh, had written a series of letters to various potential class members, predominantly large businesses, concerning their participation in the collective proceedings and essentially warning them 
that they would face large disclosure ex exercises if they if they didn't opt out of the proceedings. And the uh, the proposed class representative solicitors became aware of that, brought it to the attention of the tribunal, and the tribunal ruled that there was this inherent restriction. There's, there's nothing specifically on the face of the rules, but there is this inherent restrictions that that says that that is not permitted. And their reasoning is that the whole point of collective proceedings is that there is a represented person and that the represented person is represented by a class, a class representative. And it is the class representative who is a party and they are the ones that, that should be communicating with other parties. And it sort of goes against that if you are making direct communications with members of the class. Now, that I think it makes good sense. And I can certainly see why the CAP didn't particularly like the fact that it was sort of undermining the, the proceedings to have uh, defendants writing directly to class members. But there's the, the second decision that's um, earlier this year in uh, CICC, it brings about a really interesting and potentially tricky issue for defendants to have to, to navigate, uh, to, to navigate, sorry. And, and what happened there was that the uh, defendants, having been made aware of the decision in, in the Roro cartel, raised an issue with the tribunal and said, well, we understand this restriction, but we, we just want to seek a direction from you because we are receiving, we're not initiating these communications, but we're receiving communications from um, from customers of ours who have also got claims against us, but might be potentially in the class. And we want to know what, what to do about it. And the tribunal said, well, you're absolutely right. It's appropriate that you've raised this with us, um, but you, uh, you, you can't communicate with them about the collective proceedings. And relevantly, those communications in CICC were communications about settling claims and the reasoning of the tribunal is that you can't if if there are separate proceedings that are going in parallel to the proposed collective proceedings you can't engage in settling those proposed collective proceedings because they say they they're, they're part of it because they there is this interconnectedness between uh, those other proceedings and the main proceedings and the reason that is is that you're, if you're going to join, ultimately going to join the class, you've got to give up those other proceedings. Now, that, again, I think makes sense, but it does really raise the issue from a defendant's perspective as to what, what it means to be concerning the collective proceedings. And I think when it comes to settlement on the reasoning in CICC, that's clear enough. But I think given how new this issue is and how novel the, the, the law is in this area, there are going to be lots of interesting issues in relation to what it means to concern the collective proceedings. And you can certainly see from a from a PR perspective that there are going to be times when, for all the reasons that Simon's articulated, you're going to want to be able to communicate with potential class members, but you're potentially falling foul of the restriction in the CAT rules. Is there anything that you'd add to that, Simon? I think one thing that um, is interesting, which is not specifically limited to the cat, but we do see a um, we do see a kind of increase in in the trend of defendants um, having some form of articulation of their 
case in the in the public domain, often kind of on their um, on their website. And broadly speaking, I think that's something that we would you know we would advocate for because you know when you Google a particular um, claim, you often you know are kind of you see lots of stuff from kind of claimant firms. They will often have their own kind of uh, claimant websites. In many cases, there might be a number of claimant, you know, different claimant firms, all of whom have a kind of site, slightly separate website. So, you know, the average consumer is broadly speaking kind of inundated with claimant side material, but but not necessarily anything from the um, from the defendant. So, we do see a sort of increase in in defendants using that. Um, using using their website or their you know their kind of own content as a way of of, of articulating their um their side of the story as it were and and ensuring that the kind of narrative um around the case remains balanced and i think that's probably something that that kind of wouldn't necessarily um fit into that kind of direct communication in the way um in the way that it did in the kind of roro case but it's still it still provides an opportunity for as i say the defendants to um to rebalance the narrative. I want to move on to the, the role of funders from a uh, public relations perspective. Um, as I get the sense, Simon, that you'll tell me your research suggests there is somewhat of a disconnect between the public perception about what funders do and what I think are the reasonably clear current judicial attitudes to funding which as i see it very much sees the the industry as being a cornerstone of um, access to justice and the ability of these um, of group and class actions actually being viable yeah i think the, the data shows exactly that i think litigation funding as a sector is, is probably not really permeated the, the kind of public consciousness too much but when we do sort of as part of this research kind of explain the role of funders we do see a sort of certain unease about them so our, our data showed that um 63 of custom of of people polled believe that all of the compensation should go to um those affected but fit but when you kind of slightly dig down in the detail 52 percent do accept that in order to bring um bring a, a class action there needs to be there needs to be kind of some there needs to be some funding someone footing the um footing the bill so ultimately we see a sort of slight unease but probably ultimately accepting um accepting their role i think I think the other kind of interesting stats that our research shows is 24% of, of the public would be um, would be kind of dissuaded from uh, signing up if they thought the funder was to take a large portion of the of the compensation. And perhaps as we start to see more and more claims reach their kind of conclusion, either through um, damages being awarded by the court or through settlement, and we start to see a bit more of the, the kind of makeup of um, of where damages goes, perhaps that will start to to lead to a bit of a shift in um in how the people in how the public perceives um perceives funders and i think that poses some interesting challenges on both both for defendants but also for the kind of for the funders themselves in the kind of payment legal sector more widely yeah I, I i agree with that i think the the nature of the conversation around funding in this jurisdiction is is likely to change 
as we start to that as there is an increased public awareness of of the role that it is playing once we start getting to the stage of distribution in a lot of these these cat claims uh, and you know you've you've alluded to earlier the position in the us which is that as i understand it there's a, a pretty significant degree of consumer apathy when it comes to actually collecting damages and i think i'm right in saying that that studies show that it's sort of around about the 10% mark of, of people who actually come forward. And I think, you know, it, it is, you've already alluded to the, the bespoke regime that the cat has, uh, note, you know, the incentives that, that it places on, on defendants to settle uh, with, with a possibility of, of this reversion to defendants of unclaimed sums for settlement. Um, if, if people don't come forward and, and collect the amounts, that, that bit doesn't apply where there's an award of damages where any unclaimed amounts would go to, to, a, to a charity, which at the moment is an, the Access to Justice Foundation. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that consumer apathy point um, is absolutely um, absolutely key to the kind of future reputation of the of, of collective proceedings more generally. I mean, our, our polling shows that that in general the public perceive that lawyers and funders are the kind of main beneficiaries from um, from this type of litigation. And I think as you start to see as you know these kind of claims come through and whether you know whether pie is apportioned in, in in a in a big way to kind of all the lawyers take a, a big cut the funders take a, a good return on their um on their investment which obviously you know the case wouldn't have proceeded without that but ne but nevertheless they are there to kind of make a make a profit and then if you see the kind of damages awarded in the you know as you say in, in america it's kind of around 10 percent i think that kind of wider public interest argument to this type of um litigation becomes just just that little bit harder to um to make fascinating stuff stepping back uh then simon and to to finish us off what what trends are you seeing from a pr perspective in in class and group actions at the moment so one of the things we often um i, I suppose sort of often group together is um is kind of wider public interest litigation so we kind of think of class actions and and sort of esg type claims as often being in that that same kind of bucket of public interest litigation and i think that's a kind of area that we are seeing some quite interesting trends in so when we looked at the types of sector that people would most be interested in kind of joining a class action for finance was was the largest at 48% followed by healthcare at 44% followed by um, technology at 36%. So I think that gives you a little bit of a kind of window into the types of sectors where people perhaps feel the the need or, or feel that there is a role for kind of a judicial intervention, um, perhaps with a view of kind of, I suppose, improving the public good in the kind of broadest sense of the word that people um that people kind of see in in those sectors um i think one of the things that's quite interesting um at the moment in the kind of uh is the evolution and actually to be fair quite firm establishment of parent company law 
um, which means that you defendants can be sued in the jurisdiction of their parent company for um, for an issue that that happened outside of that jurisdiction. And obviously, uh, from a uh, from a London perspective that is quite fascinating because obviously what you see in London is a fairly um, fairly open uh, uh, judicial system where we have a kind of a vibrant press looking at it and actually you know that means that um, that means that from a reputation point of view perhaps it is it is um, heightened having the litigation happen in London or indeed another kind of financial uh, financial capital versus perhaps in a in a other jurisdiction. So that's something I think that we'll we'll probably see more of, and I think defendants um, are and, and should be um, should be alive to. Yeah, um, I think all of that very much chimes with um, our experience as well, particularly in terms of um, the uh, awareness and focus on on ESG uh, litigation, both in a class action context and otherwise. Simon, thank you very much indeed for your time. Uh, that has been um, fascinating. I'm sure uh, our viewers uh, will have learned a lot. I know I have. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you all for listening. Um, be sure to check out our other episodes in this series on class actions. We welcome any feedback or questions. So do get in touch with any of us. Our details are on the website. And to ensure you don't miss out on any future episodes, do subscribe now on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And while you're there, please feel free to keep the conversation going, leave a comment, leave a rating, leave a review. And until then, once again, thanks for listening.